Thank you for your hospitality to me and the sound that will go away, I believe. Thank you. Um, I'm still getting to know people in this congregation. My family moved here from Grand Rapids last year. My husband works at InterVarsity Press. That's what brought him down in August. And our children, Evelyn and Judah, and I followed this past December. We were Evangelical Covenant in Grand Rapids, part of Thornapple Covenant Church, and we are happy to remain in the family of the covenant here at Hinsdale. We became members in June. So thank you for your hospitality to us. I'm a student at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, one of, I believe, two covenant students there. And I've remained in their distance program since we moved. I'm in the Master of Divinity program. So I invite you to pray that God will open our ears and our eyes to see what the Spirit has to say to this church today. Jesus, living word, we praise you for your life for the stories that we have about you and how you served. We praise you for the model you are for how God wants us to be. May your spirit show us today and form us and work in us so that we may be a light to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. This summer, we're listening to questions God asks us. You may have noticed that in the scripture reading you just heard, God didn't ask a question. <laughs> the story I, I will tell today is from Luke's gospel, and I ask that this section of Luke 1 be read because Mary's song is the heartbeat of Luke's gospel. And as you read every single story, you can hear her song like the theme song in the movie, playing, underscoring the events that Luke tells about in his gospel. Remember with me these words from Luke's gospel, chapter 18. People were also bringing their babies to Jesus so that he could touch and bless them. When the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, the man became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, 
how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is wealthy to enter God's kingdom. Then those who heard this said, then who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with people is possible with God. Peter said, we left all we had to follow you. Yes, Jesus said, and I assure you that anyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or child for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will receive eternal life in the world to come. The word of the Lord. We all have an inheritance from our parents. There's the genetic inheritance. I have brown eyes from my father. We inherit our parents' voices, biologically at least. Many of us will remember before the ubiquity of cell phones when we had landlines in our home. Did you or your child ever answer the phone and then you were thought to be your mom or dad or your child was thought to be you or your spouse? I remember that happening. I sound like my mom, apparently. Maybe you inherited a personality trait, stubbornness, perhaps, or the ability to make conversation with anyone in the room. Genetically, we might inherit tendencies towards certain diseases, or poor vision, or a specific body type. Some of us might think of money or possessions when we think of inheritance. Uh, a chair that was my great-grandmother's, perhaps, or a ring, a wedding ring, maybe something larger, a house or a cabin, one that you have to maintain and you have to pay taxes on. Inheritance is a big deal. It's a big deal if you have one. It's a big deal if you don't. There are some inheritances that we want and some that we'd rather not have, that we'd prefer to pass on, but we can't. This certain ruler in Luke 18 is concerned about his inheritance. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He seems to want to get it right. He wants to do good and be good. He wants to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. And he's been really good. First of all, he's waited behind all these babies. This is one story you heard today. It takes place at one time. And these babies are probably crying, at least some of them, a little smelly. And this is unusual to say the least, because men of his stature do not wait behind babies. In Jewish culture of the first century, which we could call more pro-child than the Greco-Roman culture that surrounded it, children were still considered a liability at best, because 40%, only 40% of children who were born made it to their 20th birthday. And at least, children had no human rights. They were basically considered the same as slaves. It's adults who were considered valuable. It's adults who build the community. It's adults who matters. And I think this ruler matters. 
He matters because he's the kind of man who gets things right. He's the kind of man who's respected in his community, honored by his family. He has been educated in the Hebrew school system, so he knows the law. He's even looked up the etiquette for this situation and whatever the first century equivalent of Emily Post is. Uh, what do I address this guy? Jesus. Good teacher. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he expects a similar but more honorific response because in this culture, one honor demands another. So he wonders, what's Jesus going to call him in return? More good ruler? That would be nice. Most excellent good ruler? That would be better. But Jesus doesn't play this game. Instead, he ignores the expectation and answers the question with a question, typical Jesus, right? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You're not good. That's what he's saying. And there's a pause here. I think the, the ruler thinks, this is not how it's supposed to go. And then Jesus reminds him of the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, honor your father and don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man nods, all these I have kept since I was a boy. But Jesus still doesn't call him good. There's one more thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The ruler starts to think about his life, about his inheritance, maybe about the house with the newly tiled floor. He thinks of the inheritance he hopes to give his sons someday and the dowries he's required to provide for his daughters. He wonders about the logistics. How long will it take him to sell everything he has? There's no first century Craigslist. What will his wife say? The disciples in the crowd watch as this man's face drops. And, and then, I love this part in the text, we read that Jesus looked at him. It's not a shaming kind of look. It's not an evil eye. I think it's a knowing kind of look. It's compassionate. It's a look of compassion on this man for his sin sickness. Because even though he says he's kept these five commandments, there's still five other commandments that haven't entered this conversation. Do you remember? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You shall not covet. Four of these five commandments have to do with material wealth and work. And Jesus looks at him because he knows that this ruler has not followed those commandments, even if he had followed the first five. He has committed idolatry in his heart, putting his trust in money and status rather than God. He has looked to his wealth and power to save him. He has worked hard. He's worked to be a self-made man, and he hasn't rested in the gracious work and mercy of God. He has coveted. That's what's motivated the desire and ambition that's got him to where he is in the first place. 
And then Jesus issues the clincher. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The entire crowd is staring with their mouths wide open at this point. Because this is completely opposite from how they understand the world to be. In that culture, it's a given that the rich have found favor with God. That's why they're rich. Of course they'll enter God's kingdom. Showers of blessings in this life and the next. But Jesus says no. Jesus says your wealth, your status, your power, it doesn't make you good. You're not good. This must have been a pretty disappointing day for this ruler, don't you think? He's kind of insulted. And then when he's given the opportunity to do good, to sell his stuff, give to the poor, and follow Jesus, he stands there hanging his head like Charlie Brown. This story happened about 2,000 years ago. But you know, I think this man isn't that far from our own context. In a world where prestige and power and education and wealth and gold medals are viewed as signs of success and happiness, this ruler could have very easily stepped out of the 21st century. He very easily could have stepped right out of a house in this neighborhood in Hinsdale. He very easily could have stepped right off the cover of the pages of Hinsdale Living magazine. So why did he go to Jesus? His motives, I think like many of ours, are mixed. Perhaps he wanted his ego stroked by this teacher he had heard so much about. But his very presence shows us that he wanted somehow to get it right, to do good and be good, at least enough to wait behind a parade of screaming babies. And we're here today, too. We woke up and came to this worship service, maybe out of habit or desire to start a new habit. I think we're here because we want to get it right. We want to do good and be good. Some of us read books to help us do this, like How to Win Friends and Influence People or The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. These books might be helpful, but they will not answer our deepest questions. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Have I got it right? Am I good enough? We hope God will make it clearer to us today we want a little more direction, a little louder, still, and small voice. But Jesus' direction seems pretty clear here. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. <laughs> I mean, nobody actually follows this, right? We're not supposed to take this literally, right? I mean, not here. Sell all you have and give to the poor? I realize I could preach on this passage without asking this question. I could focus on other parts. But I think, and you might agree, that would all go away with a deep question wondering, is what Jesus said universal or particular? Is it to all of us or is it to this, this one guy in Luke 18? Does Jesus mean me? Some people have interpreted this passage to mean everyone, universally, 
Luke, the writer of Luke's gospel, writes later in the Gospel of Acts, chapter 4, the believers were of all of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they all shared everything they had. About 270 AD, St. Anthony, he did it, sold everything, lived in the desert as a hermit. St. Francis, he did it, and he encouraged his followers to do the same. Monks and nuns and missionaries do it. Did you catch last week, if you were here, when Mark and Liz were talking? They mentioned selling all their things before they went to Kenya. They did it. But what about us? What about us and our Cape Cod houses, our VWs, our kitchen knives, our lawnmowers, our baby pictures, our children's Playmobil and Legos and lacrosse equipment? What about that? Are you a little intimidated by this? I am. When I told my husband I was preaching on this passage, Justin said, that one? <laughs> Pastor Lars and Pastor Paul chose that for you? And I said, no, they didn't choose it for me. I chose it for myself. I, I told this story at a worship conference this past summer. And I thought, well, there's a question Jesus asks us. But now I am in the deep end of the pool. And I invite you to join me down here because honestly, I like my stuff. I like my cowboy boots and my fiesta wear. I like my Madeline Lingle books. I like my mug that was my grandmother's that says New Hampshire on it. She's dead now. It reminds me of her. I like my retirement savings. I like my stuff. And I, I'm just guessing, but I think you might like your stuff too. But also, I want to get it right. I want to inherit eternal life, just like this ruler did. I want to do good and be good. But deep down, I, I know I'm not. I'm not good. But God is. Jesus asks, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. I think the ruler called Jesus good because it was the polite thing to do and he wanted that ego boost in return by Jesus' response. But why do I call Jesus good? Why do you call Jesus good? You know, we could make a list all day long of the reasons Jesus is good and why we call him good. That would be a wonderful devotional exercise. As we were singing hymns, I thought, this hymnal is all about how and why Jesus is good. My inner theologian says, well, Jesus is good because Jesus is God. And we could talk about the theology of the incarnation, what it means that Jesus is 100% God and 100% perfectly human at the same time. Jesus is good because Jesus is God. But beyond that theological category, I think that Jesus shows us why he's good in this passage through his interaction with the ruler. Jesus is good because he answers this ruler personally. When the ruler asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus could have said, dude, didn't you hear what I just said about those kids? Anyone who does not become like a child will not inherit the kingdom of God. He could have said that. But Jesus is good, and he didn't. He restates his theme in a new way, in a, 
way this particular individual can understand. Go. You could almost say it with me now. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus is good because he doesn't want this guy's stuff. Did you notice that? He didn't say, um, give your donation to Judas, the treasurer over there. We'll provide a receipt for tax purposes. No, though God cares deeply, and even as some describe, God has preferential concern for the poor throughout Scripture. Jesus' primary concern here is for the individual ruler. He wants this guy to not have stuff so he can get busy following Jesus. Jesus says, leave your stuff behind. I don't want your stuff. Your power, your status, your wealth, it doesn't matter to me. It's not what I care about. It's you. It's you I care about. I want you to follow me. Jesus is saying that our true identities are identities as disciples of Christ, not identities embedded in our power, our status, our education, or our wealth. And disciples of Christ are children of God. Even today, children still have less status than adults, right? They can't vote. They can't buy cigarettes or alcohol. We recognize that children are not fully mature. And families with babies and children recognize the trust that children have for them. They have trust in their parents. Children say, I'm hungry, or a baby makes that, that crying sound to communicate that they're hungry, and they trust that the parents or the adults in their life will feed them. Children owe their existence to their parents and guardians. And not just their life and their origin, but their sustenance, their food and clothing and shelter, their emotional and social and physical well-being. I have a cousin, Natalia, who has adopted six children out of the foster care system. One daughter, Jenna, had experienced deep hunger as an infant before she was taken in by Natalia's family. And even though she couldn't articulate it, she was desperately afraid that there wouldn't be enough food. And so Natalia provided a backpack of snacks for Jenna to wear. Natalia said, look, here's food. There will always be enough. There's always enough food in our home. You will not be hungry. And Jenna would wear that backpack of snacks around. And about every 15 minutes, she'd take it off and unzip it and do an inventory of the snacks. Goldfish, banana, granola bar, apple. And then she'd pack it up and put it back in. Jenna had to learn that there would be enough, that she would not go hungry. But Jenna doesn't wear that backpack anymore because she knows and trusts that Natalia will feed her Jenna had to learn how to be a child and how to trust that her parents would provide all her needs. Jesus is good because Jesus is God and God provides all our needs. We don't have to pack our backpack. And, and anyway, our backpack isn't really ours, it's God's. God provides all our needs because the earth is the Lord's. And in God's kingdom, the hungry are filled with good food. They're given backpacks of snacks, and the rich are sent away empty. But you know what? I think, I think the rich can acknowledge their hunger and come back to Jesus. Because God, who is good as the provider, 
the God who fed the Israelites with manna and quail, who fed Elijah bread and meat in the morning from, from the mouths of ravens, and bread and meat in the evening will feed us too. And this is what I want to tell the certain ruler. I want to say to him, God will feed you. You don't have to be sad. You can't work for an inheritance. It's something you receive. And this inheritance is life in Christ. And this is what I hope the ruler recognized. In Matthew and Mark's account of the story, we read that the certain ruler went away sad. But, you know, that's not in Luke's account. In Luke's story, we don't know what happened to the ruler. And I think that makes sense because I think we don't know the end of the story because we are the end of the story. We're called to identify with this guy. The Spirit empowers us to live lives with open hands, doing things like selling a car to a dollar for a, to the pastor and his family, or loaning thousands of dollars to a needy friend and then canceling the debt, or even receiving this kind of generosity when we need it. And the Spirit is ready to teach us, too, how we may bravely relinquish so that our hands are free to receive the inheritance of life life here and eternally, that God wants to give us. And with the Spirit's help, we can start practicing today. I wonder, can we change our language, just as a first step, so that we're always acknowledging that nothing is ours, that everything is God's? It might sound silly at first. It might sound silly to say God's car instead of my car, or God's jacket instead of my jacket. It might be uncomfortable. It's certainly countercultural. But we are formed by language. Language matters. This may be a wise way to begin. And how is the Spirit inviting us to look for opportunities to give, not opportunities to get or gain? There are big opportunities that it have been joyful to see this congregation respond to, like when the money was raised to renovate a room at Naomi's house. It was a pretty big opportunity. There are small opportunities, too, all the, all the time to live with open hands. Hand-me-downs, garden vegetables, the people who bring the food for coffee hour. It's a wonderful acknowledgement of people living with open hands. All of these things, big and small, are God's. The earth is the Lord's. Jesus is good. And through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we can become more good. God forms us in Christ-likeness into self-giving people who model ourselves after our self-giving Lord. When we all get to heaven, I hope that we can say, Lord, we left all we had to follow you. Thanks be to God who makes all things possible. Amen. Please pray with me. Oh, Jesus, may this story be one that plays in our mind all week. May we see your loving interaction with this ruler and with the children and be invited into a world where the high are brought down and the low are brought up. Show us in each of our lives and context how this is true and how we may join you in your kingdom. 
Thank you for your grace and mercy for all of us. Amen.